Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, folk musician Frank Thomas has been writing songs about Florida for nearly 40 years. Some of the old-time country stuff that was really fascinating me. We didn't have electricity, but we had a battery-operated radio. We'll look at historic maps depicting the Atlantic world, just through the visual interpretation of these maps, we can see the evolution of this Atlantic world theory. And we'll revisit the Ice Age archaeological site in Vero. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I've seen the Blue Ridge Mountains standing so high the Beauty made by God's own hand, the Florida I love you. My heart is buried in this sand. Frank Thomas writes and performs songs about the history, people, and places of Florida. Songs such as Old Cracker Cowman, The Flatwoods of Home, and Spanish Gold have earned him a loyal following. In 2013, Thomas was inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. Thomas's Florida roots run deep. The Thomas side of the family came into Florida in 1820, and he married a girl who was born in St. Augustine in 1805, and her parents had was well established there. They'd been there about 20 years, so I'm thinking, you know, that had to be late 1780s or early 1790s. Anyway, uh, but I don't know what her maiden name was either. I, I, I really, if I could find that, I could uh, find out more, you know, about it. But they, they raised children, and uh, there's Thomases scattered all over the place. Members of the Thomas family experienced a lot of Florida history. Longevity seems to run in my family. My daddy was born in 1882. Now, he grew up in a whole different era and environment. Now, you think about that, and I was born in 43. And he was 61, I think, when I was born. And my mother was almost 50. Well, you know, his, his daddy, I think, died at a fairly early age. I think a one-eyed mule kicked him in the head, and that's what killed him. But then my great-granddaddy, who was singing about in that song about the uh, Flatwoods of Home, fought in the, in the Great War, Northern Aggression, and fought in the Seminole Indian Wars, was at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and some of that stuff. And then he, uh, they, they go on back before him. Thomas grew up in Middleburg, Florida, in a musical family who played gospel music. His first performing experiences were in church. His early musical influences also included performers on radio broadcasts of the Grand Ole Opry, including Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, and Webb Pierce. 
some of the old time country stuff that was really fascinating me. We didn't have electricity, but we had a battery operated radio. And my mama would listen to these uh, old soap opera things, you know, in the daytime. My daddy made her save that battery for Saturday night so he could listen to the Grand Ole Opry. And that's where I first started getting the influence. But they sang gospel. And uh, I grew up in that environment singing gospel music. After serving seven years in the Army in the 1960s, Thomas began touring with nationally known gospel, country, and bluegrass bands as a guitarist and singer. He played with groups including the Taylor Brothers, the Webb Family, and the Arkansas Travelers. Of course, I went off and, uh, you know, was uh, worked, toured all over the country with commercial country bands and stuff like that. But I made my way back to Florida in the uh, late 70s and met uh, Will McLean. And Will was a big inspiration for me. He encouraged me to write about Florida. He said, you know, you write all these love songs, cheating songs, you don't do much of that. Write about what you know, you know. And he, he used to tell me that it would take all of us doing all we can to tell Florida's story. There's so much history in the state of Florida. You say Florida and they think about dismal world, you know, and the tragic kingdom, stuff like that. And the beaches, they don't understand that uh, more calves are birthed in Florida than anywhere else. The calves are birthed here, they ship the calves out west to the feed because it's cheaper to ship the calf one time than to ship food in here to fatten them up once a month or whatever. So it's just, uh, it's fascinating stuff, you know. And, and this area where we're at right now up here in North Florida, this is a big tobacco growing country. Cotton was big up here. And I guess, you know, back uh, before the war, they had plantations up here. Probably had slaves working on the plantations and things. So Florida, it's just fascinating to me, the history of it. All the way back through the Spanish and the British, and then the, the crackers came in, and here we are today. In the late 1970s, Frank Thomas joined other folk musicians such as Gamble Rogers, Paul Champion, and Bobby Droddy in their efforts to preserve Florida stories in song. He rode out old Lusty in the battle of Ocean Pond With General Alfred Culprit, he put Seymour on the road The fight was short and bloody, a few hours maybe four on February 20, back in 1864. Thomas gained a reputation for strongly encouraging other performers to write songs about Florida history and culture. Cousin Thelma Bolton did the same for him. Bolton was director of the Florida Folk Festival at the Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center in White Springs from 1954 to 1965 and continued performing as a storyteller at the annual event until 1986. Thomas still performs regularly at the Florida Folk Festival each Memorial Day weekend. I try to carry that tradition on, but now sometimes I will give assignments to somebody. Go write a song about this or about that. The main reason for that was Cousin Thelma Bolton. She used to be the, ran this folk festival so many years. She hemmed me up one time backstage, got to putting her finger in my, she was an old school teacher, retired, she scared me good. But she would, uh, was telling me about she was riding the bus one morning, real early, and they come up on this thing where they had a chain across the road with a red lantern hanging across, and they stopped the bus, and they got to sitting there listening, and they heard 
guns and they said it was like a war going on. And she said, now they had that old Mar Barker and her son Doc hemmed up in that house down there and uh, they killed him right then. She said, now you go write a song about that and you have that for me the next time I see you. I avoided the rest of the festival. But she would do that to a lot of people. She would assign songs. So I thought, well, you know, that's not a bad song I wrote. And if it worked for her, why couldn't it work, you know, for other people? So I started giving out some assignments, and that's how that all kind of happened. Thelma Bolton told Frank Thomas about the FBI attempt to capture the infamous Barker gang at their Florida hideout in Oklahoma. The resulting shootout resulted in the deaths of family matriarch Ma Barker and her son Fred. It's pieces of Florida history like this that Thomas captures in song. Well, you can write a newspaper article or a magazine article or whatever, and people will read it, and they'll be putting it in the birdcage the next day or whatever, and they'll forget about it. A song seems to stay with people. It focuses on their mind, and they don't forget it. And I think that's why, it's, it's, especially in, in school, with the, the kids in school, they need to be teaching more Florida history through music in the schools, is my opinion. You, you pick up on things like that when you hear it at an early age. And, uh, you know, it's just like when I was little, and I was telling you about the gospel. There used to be a song called Set Your Fields on Fire. Man, I love that song. But I didn't know what it meant. And uh, there was a holiness preacher come set up a tent. Now, he had snakes he'd handle, too, but they made him stop doing that. But he had two sons, Buck and J.C., and their mama picked a piano. And they would they jumped up and sang that song one night, and old John Searcy, the preacher, jumped up and went to preaching about that very thing. And he said, you know, was telling about how these uh, somebody had caught these foxes, young foxes, and tied dry wheat or something to their tails, set it on fire and they run through and burn up the wheat fields, set your fields on fire. Well, mama had an old house cat that used to tag me, and I never did like that cat, but she was just there everywhere I went. And one day, the next day after that, I think I was sitting out there in the barn, and here comes that old cat. And I got to thinking, reckon if it worked on them foxes, why it wouldn't work on this cat? And there was some dry corn shucks all around there in the barn. And I took some haywire, baling wire, wrapped them corns. Old cat lets you do anything to her. Wrapped them around her tail, and there's some old long matches you strike on anything in there. They light a fire and scald hogs. I let that stuck at that cat. Boy, I'm telling you, that cat went around and around and around and run. Now the woods was real dry, and the pine straw everywhere, you know. And that cat strung fire looked like for a mile across there. Well, my mama you know, caught on to that pretty quick. Here she comes running. She's got her peach tree switch. That's what she used on me all the time. My sister saved me. She come out and said, Mama, he couldn't have done that. Look, how could he have strung fire a mile down? Then my mama asked me about her old cat, and I said, I think he got scared and the fire ran off. The old cat came back about three days later, but it never bothered me again. It stayed away from me. So I guess I accomplished something with setting his tail on fire. I wouldn't do that today, but it would seem like the right thing to do when I was a youngin'. And that all come from a holiness preacher preaching about it. In addition to playing several performances at the Florida Folk Festival each year, Frank Thomas holds a workshop for up-and-coming artists on how to write Florida-specific songs. 
But we started doing a workshop down on the river, at that river gazebo, and it's about Florida. Everybody that comes through there that sings a song, the song has to be about Florida. The Florida people, the, the rivers, the, the wood, whatever, it's gotta be related to Florida. A lot of people started writing songs so they could be on that workshop. And we had a radio show that ran, uh, had a 12 year run that originated in Tampa, but was syndicated all over. And that show, it was called Songs of Florida. And you had, that's what you had to have to qualify to be on the show. Well, a lot of people wanted to be on the radio show and they started writing. So, so it sparked some interest in that. And uh, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that anywhere you go around this festival, you'll hear and see people singing songs about the history or love or something about the state of Florida or the Swanee River or Lake Okeechobee or wherever it might be. Folk musician Frank Thomas has been writing and performing songs about Florida history and culture for nearly 40 years and encouraging others to do the same. Without arms and nearly starving, bloodhounds on their tracks. Facing Colts revolving rifles, the Everglades to their back. The Seminole would wander through this river of grass. their captors till the very last for many years to come the bloody fighting would go on cause the Seminole would die before they'd leave their home the government had vowed that we'll drive them from this land Descendants of the seven walk the Okeechobee sand. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming special events like our annual meeting and symposium, listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. You can subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over sideways and under on a magic carpet ride A whole new world A new fantastic point of view No one to tell us no Or where to go Or 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Historians have developed theories to give 500 years of European occupation some context. Ben, what's the prevailing theory right now? Well, in the last few decades, historians have really developed what's known as the Atlantic World Theory or the Atlantic Theory. And the main thrust is to connect both the physical geography with economic and social elements of colonial American history. And central to that is, of course, Florida history, which is a big part of the early colonial American experience with the first European city here in the United States, St. Augustine, uh, and some of the earliest explorers landing on Florida's shores in the early 16th century. Now, roughly the dates for what we would term the Atlantic world theory uh, would be the late 15th century, the Columbus expeditions up through the 19th century. And as I said before, it's an attempt to connect not only the physical geography being the Atlantic world, the Atlantic Ocean, and all of the continents that border the Atlantic Ocean, but also the various societies and exchanges and cultures that occurred over that 500-year period. Uh, And it's become incredibly important because for many uh, decades before the advent of an Atlantic world theory, we thought in sort of a Eurocentric type of way, meaning that that Europeans came to the New World and they drove the exchange between these two cultures, the Native Americans that lived here uh, later on in the 18th and 19th century with the advent of the Atlantic slave trade. They were the drivers of that force. But what we've begun to understand now is that it's much more complex than that. And there are so many more players that are involved in this exchange. And it's that exchange that have helped kind of develop the New World that we know today. Now, you brought with you uh, several maps. It looks like you have maps here reflecting about uh, four centuries that also tie into this Atlantic world theory. Yeah, that's right. And the topic itself can seem somewhat esoteric. It can seem kind of out there. You know, scholars argue about uh, a lot of the details when we talk about Atlantic world theory. And I always felt like maps, these symbolic representations, are probably some of the easiest ways to understand the long evolution of our understanding of the new world. Again, going back from the 16th century up uh, here to the 19th century. Uh, So I brought a selection here to kind of illustrate that evolution. Uh, First, we're looking at one of the earliest maps that we have here in the Florida Historical Society collection. This dates from the late 1590s, and it was part of a larger world atlas that was drafted by a Dutch engraver by the name of Theodore de Bry. And we can see here the the map itself. There are a lot of symbols that we can immediately recognize. And right in the center of the map, we see the island of Hispaniola that's immediately recognizable. Next to that, we have Cuba. Here are the islands of Jamaica, Puerto Rico, and, and a few of the other Caribbean islands. And then up at the top, we have Florida. And there's a reason that these islands are essentially in the center of the map. When we think about the late 16th century, where were the Spanish settling at that time? It was in the Caribbean region. They were settling these islands, and they were cultivating a lot of these islands. This is where we get that economic component. Okay, We can see that visually here in the map. If we look at Florida, it's not as well defined. So we can tell that there, there isn't as much of an influence on Florida. Uh, we can also see parts of Central and South America, again, that are, that are much more heavily occupied by the Spanish in the late 16th century. So just by staring at this map, we can see where the influence of the mapmaker really lies. Let's fast forward a little bit, another century. 
This is a 1663 map showing both North and South America. Again, you can see the development in the South American continent, but also in some of the symbols. Here we have uh, what looks like a Native American dwelling uh, in the interior of what is now Brazil. The Caribbean is much more well-defined. You can also see some maritime locations, parts of the western coast of Africa. This is the, the beginnings of the Atlantic slave trade. So there, our map is expanding further and further out. Now if we look at an early 18th century map, this is depicting the West Indies and the Caribbean region. And you'll note here we have dotted lines showing trade routes. Right, so here we have another element of that cultural exchange. We have economic and cultural trade between materials that are being produced here in the Caribbean that are being shipped back to Europe, and then Europeans who are then coming back on the ships across the Atlantic to the New World and developing that New World. And finally, if we look at the last map, this is the largest map that we have. It shows the United States in 1825. This is just after Florida enters the United States as a U.S. territory, and it's prominently placed here in the American South. Uh, you can see the existence of, of political boundaries now, state lines, and the development of an American South that is based largely on the slave plantation economy. So again, through these maps, we can see, just through the visual uh, interpretation of these maps, we can see the evolution of this Atlantic world theory taking place. Well, Ben, how is this colonial history of Florida and these theories about it relevant today? Well, the theory itself, like I said, is very complex, and there are certain elements that can be argued. The idea now is that we want to integrate both the, the experiences of slaves and Europeans and Native Americans, but it's all vitally important. It's all part of the narrative of American history and of Western civilized history. You know, if we look at it, we can better understand how all of these elements combine to create what we see in here today. We can better understand where we're going. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Some fascinating new discoveries are being made at an Ice Age archaeological site in Vero. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. So basically, it would be as if you or I were studying modern dietary practices across contemporary U.S. And we might know what they eat in the Southwest, and we might know what they tend to eat, if, if it's humanly possible to know, what they eat in California or in the Northeast, but we might not know what broad spectrum of foods they're consuming in the Southeast. And so what we're trying to do is to sort of fill in the gaps in our understanding of these early lifestyles by focusing on food debris, artifactual remains, and other indications of, in fact, what the hell are they doing on the landscape? That was Dr. James Edeveso with Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. He was telling me about the discovery and excavation of a prehistoric archaeological site in Vero, Florida. The site has been studied for quite some time. Back during World War I, but before the U.S. entry into it, the prevailing notion among North American archaeologists was that humans had not entered the New World during the last Ice Age. 
That was the majority view. And at the time, Elias Sellards was the state geologist of Florida, and he made a series of discoveries at Vero Beach in what is now called the old Vero Man site, a name we're trying to get away from. But in any case, these discoveries suggested to him that human beings and Ice Age animals had in fact been contemporaries on the Florida landscape. And so for a brief period of time, Vero became the controversial epicenter of North American archaeology. Everybody and his brother and or sister who was interested in issues of the peopling of the New World generally or the arrival of Native Americans in Florida specifically was aware of the Vero site. The site has been known throughout the 20th century, but Dr. Adivasio tells me how he got involved. Amateurs would go to the area and collect materials until a few years ago, there was supposed to be a water treatment plant dug or, or emplaced in the same area as the site. And a local citizens group in Vero called the Old Vero Ice Age Sites Committee got together with some professional archaeologists to generate new interest in this locality. And that is how I essentially became involved in it. And Andy Hemmings, my associate, became involved in it. And initially, the re-excavations, which began in 2014, were under the auspices of Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania. And subsequently, they have come under the auspices of Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. I asked how this earlier site in Vero relates to the Windover site in Brevard County that dates back 9,000 years ago. The Windover people are thousands of years later. I, I was also involved during those excavations in the recovery of the textile and basketry material from that site that, as you know, was excavated under the auspices of Florida State University and Glenn Dorn, now retired. Uh, this site is, is thousands of years earlier than that, and there may be no genetic relationship between the people who lived at Vero or visited Vero and the people who were buried at Windover. The Vero site holds important insight into early human civilization. Over the years, the Vero locality has produced the largest array of extinct plant and animal fossils found anywhere east of the Mississippi River. There's an incredible diversity of fauna represented there, and that's part of the reason that the site would have been a magnet for prehistoric human visitation, is that late in the last ice age, it would have been a pocket of abundance, so to speak, for both plants and animals, and any humans in the vicinity would have and apparently did stop and camp there. What we have been recovering are evidences of those earliest camping events and it's about as old as the other early sites in Florida. But what we're trying to find out is, with a group like the ones that visited Vero, being in close proximity to the sea at the time, and also being, or being able to access these diversified local resources, what were their lifestyles like? What were these people doing? What was their technology like? So that's what we're focusing upon is the nature of the activities they conducted there, not simply when they arrived. That was Dr. James Adivasio, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen as a podcast. Don't miss the television series Florida Frontiers on your local PBS affiliate. Check myfloridahistory.org for airtimes. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.